0: JYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is the rundown, Philadelphia's local news podcast for Wednesday, November third, two thousand twenty-one. I'm Jay Scott Smith, joined by Sabrina Boyd Circa and Brian Seltzer, and the election results are in. Well, most of them. As we record this, we're still waiting on a decision in the New Jersey governor's race. But we're going to talk about what exactly did happen last night and what that could mean for this area as well as the country going forward.
1: I'm really excited to hear from Alex Silverman, our brand manager, who was here kind of running the ship as we were reporting the results live. You know, when I went home. I looked at the alerts on my phone, but I usually put the news aside because I do that all day, every day. He was here deep in it, and I kinda, I'm kind of i very curious to hear what it was like in the newsroom for this.
2: You should definitely check out Alex on Twitter. He has some great behind-the-scenes content there showing you what it was like in the newsroom. I don't know what it's like for you guys. I think as far back as I can remember, even before I could vote, I always felt some adrenaline on election night because— Regardless of whether it's presidential, midterm, whatever, stakes are really high. And I think one takeaway we can pull from Tuesday night was that for one particular party, there was a lot of energy and it gained a lot of momentum.
0: We're going to be looking toward the midterms next year. This appeared to set the table for it. Plus, we will also be talking with KYW's City Hall Bureau Chief Pat Loeb to talk about some of the results here in the city of Philadelphia, as well as open a bit of a window into this trial with Bobby Heenan, the city councilman, and John Doherty, the labor leader.
2: Yeah, we got to find out why the judge decided not to dismiss some charges in the case and where things in that trial stand as far as momentum, because the prosecution has rested. Now the defense ready to lay out its case.
0: That's all coming up today here on the podcast. But first, let's talk about our biggest story of the day, the election from last night. To talk about those results and also just the process that we go through in the newsroom on these election days, election nights, it's turned into election days really the last couple of years, It's Alex Silverman, our brand manager here at KYW News Radio and he was right in the newsroom last night overseeing all the election coverage. And I'd assume it was a late night for those in the newsroom last night.
3: Well it's always a late night for those who work that shift but yeah for for me and for some uh, some other uh, folks we we definitely stayed a little bit later than usual. I was in the newsroom till a little bit after midnight.
0: One year ago we were all in that newsroom for the presidential election and we kinda knew coming in that was going to be a very hotly contested evening. Take us kind of inside what mission control is at KYW News Radio on an election night. What's going on? What are you keeping an eye on while you're in there? It starts
3: before election night because we have to figure out where everyone's going to be. And in this case, you know it's an off year. We're trying to figure out what the best use of our reporting resources is for an election night like this. But we decided um you know looking at the polls and looking at how things were starting to play out and the rumblings that were happening that, you know, we might need to uh, make sure we've got the, you know, both sides of the New Jersey race covered live in person. And so we made sure that we had reporters at the the headquarters for both candidates in that race. We made sure that we had uh, reporters uh, located at both headquarters for the the district attorney's race, various other places checking out uh, polling conditions at various points around the region, things like that. So the prep starts early. On election night itself, it's probably one of the most fun experiences you can have in a newsroom because, you know, the energy's up, everybody's ready to go. Uh, We have people who've done it many times over and sort of know what happens when the polls close and results start to come in. My role in that night is to sort of uh, be the the quarterback of the team without annoying the heck out of everybody. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you could ask the others whether or not that was
0: accomplished. I know just from having worked with you last year during the presidential election, the vibe in the room is very distinct. There are people moving. There's constantly things happening. And sometimes it comes to the point where you might have to call a race on air. What does that look like? I guess we're kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit here. What is it like to call an election on air? What decisions go into that? What factors are we looking at when we finally say, okay, we can say with certainty that this candidate or proposals projected to win.
3: There are a lot of things we look at, and there are a lot of, I think, misperceptions about how this works out there. Uh, Sometimes it really just does come down to simple math. Sometimes it is pretty obvious, looking at the numbers, when you reach a point where one candidate cannot overcome the margin. That's gotten harder recently because of the the mail-in ballot situation. The more mail-in ballots you have and the differences in how those are counted from state to state, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction... Sometimes the variations in transparency about whether or not certain types of ballots have been counted at any given point also makes it a little more difficult. So I would say we have to be more cautious than we have been in the past about what the numbers mean. But we have, you know, help from various sources we're affiliated with. We're a member of the Associated Press. We're an affiliate of CBS, so we closely watch the calls that those organizations are making, and they have teams of people also looking at those numbers. Sometimes uh, for local races, we're kind of, you know, a little bit on our own. We got a pretty lucky, fortunate from being in in position for the da's race where we actually got a concession from chuck peruto on our air before he conceded to anybody else and before the numbers were firmed up even though we knew it was going in that direction and so we were able to say that that race was over you know slightly before the math bore it out but it really is a matter of just looking at the numbers and making sure you're making a call that's responsible and you know is not going to go the
0: other way now speaking of looking at the numbers and being responsible just across the Delaware River in New Jersey, we've got a governor's race that is still technically too close to call. What can we make of how this race has gone with an incumbent Democrat, Murphy, who by a lot of different polls appeared to be very popular in New Jersey, but was on the verge of losing this thing not that long ago?
3: I think one point that's important to make is whenever we're looking at these numbers, we have to look at where the numbers are coming from. And when we saw that lead, Murphy's initial lead shrinking, we immediately started to see, votes coming in for, from places that are typically Republican strongholds. And then the numbers were kind of flipping back and forth. And one thing we noticed was that there was a lot of the vote outstanding from places in, in North Jersey, particularly the New York suburbs, Newark in particular, and, uh, you know, Passaic County, other parts of Essex County, where we know it's going to be a heavily Democratic vote. So whenever we said that Cittarelli was leading for a period of time, we kind of had to make clear that that was the context there. And so we try to be responsible not just in when we call the race, but when we say one candidate's leading and by how much, we give the context around that. As far as the larger question, it certainly is something that will be looked at for a while because all of the public polling that was done had Murphy with a significant lead, right? And this is not something that's, you know, we haven't seen before where polls are wrong. But the campaigns seem to be implying one more so than the other leading up. That the internal polling they were doing was tighter than the public polling we were seeing. And the question is, why is that? What were they doing that the public pollsters were not doing? And why did they not get an accurate representation? And again, the caveat being, we got to see what the final number is because we don't have that yet. And we don't know exactly how many mail ballots have yet to be counted, kind of waiting on an update from, from New Jersey election officials on that. It definitely is an interesting dynamic. And as far as the politics of it, you know, not my area to speak on, but something Democrats are certainly going to be looking at as we head into next year in the midterms.
2: Jay, a stat that I know that you've brought up recently when we've done these shows is that a Democratic governor has not been reelected in New Jersey in 44 no. years. And when I first heard that stat, I was like, well, there could be a lot of factors involved in that, circumstances going on in the country, mm-hmm. the candidate themselves. But I wonder if it just speaks to a certain extent human nature, if yes. there's, there's buyers or if there's what have you done for me lately?
3: Look at Virginia. Virginia has elected a governor of the party opposite that of the president in just about every election in recent memory. And so there are people saying, well, we've got to take what happened in Virginia as a, you know, a, a commentary on, on, on Joe Biden, on X, Y and Z. You know, sometimes there are things that are sort of
0: baked into what
3: happens. And they're a little more complex
0: than you might think. Last night, those candidates both sounded really confident even though it was such a close race. First, let's go to Republican Jack Cittarelli and what he had to say.
2: We've gotta have time to make sure that every legal vote is counted. And I'm confident, I'm confident that when they are, I can stand before you and
0: not say we're winning, I can stand before you and say, we've won. Now we contrast that with the incumbent, Phil Murphy. When every vote is counted and every vote will be counted, we hope to have a celebration. We're leading with compassion and empathy, not anger and despair. We're following science and facts, not the political wins. Oh, Murphy certainly sounds like he's taking a couple shots there also in that, in that speech. So there's a lot of passion, Alex, that went into this race. And even when we didn't think it was going to be this close, when you hear that, what are what are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, one thing that I did think was really interesting about how it went last night is that obviously the crowd was amped up at, at Cittarelli's headquarters and you know everybody seeing these numbers was jubilant. But then Diane Allen, Jack Cittarelli's running mate, stood up a whole bunch of times, maybe two or three different times and said to the crowd, hang on we got to make sure there's still a lot of places that haven't been counted. And Diane Allen has a background as a journalist. So that may have been the journalist and her coming out saying, not time to celebrate yet. Let's hang on and make sure that, you know, we're confident, but we want to be sure. That was, I think, kind of a, a refreshing thing to hear from a political candidate on an election night with an unexpected,
0: you know, positive turn of events. It reminds me so much of all these years of covering sports where one team that's probably not supposed to win gets out to a big lead early. And the mindset is, okay. we haven't won this thing. We got to reel this in and just try to play to this thing is over. And as we're recording this, we're still awaiting the numbers out of New Jersey.
1: I find it really interesting when you played those two back to back. I hadn't heard those clips right up against each other. And the start of Murphy anyway, they're saying the same exact thing. They're saying we have to count every vote. So as confident as they sound It seems like there's a little bit of an undercurrent of like, well, let's wait till all the votes are counted. And also, you know, supporting like a fair election, counting every vote. Nobody is screaming stop the vote or at the moment nobody is screaming voter fraud.
3: What I was trying to say is that the comparison to last year is stark in terms of what we saw in the presidential race and in terms of how the, the two candidates are handling the reaction to this. It just seems much more subdued and
0: much more, you know, responsible and journalistic. At least they're going to take the wait and see approach as we all are. And, of course, whenever we'll have those results, we'll have them for you, of course, here on KYW News Radio. That's Alex Silverman, our Ram Manager here at KYW Radio. Alex, thank you so much for coming in and joining us for this edition of The Rundown. Love being here. Now, in a minute, we're going to talk with KYW City Hall Bureau Chief Pat Loeb to get an idea on some of the results here in the city, as well as some of the ballot questions that happened. But first, there were a couple of interesting statewide and national results. Now, here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, Republican Kevin Brobson won a seat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Nationally, Republican Glenn Youngkin won the Virginia governor's race. So what do y'all think? Was this election just a overall win for Republicans? What are we looking at here?
1: I think something we talked about, uh, Jim even mentioned this in terms of school board races, Jim Melwert, our suburban bureau chief, uh, that Republicans and people who are really riled up over mask mandates, vaccine mandates, that kind of thing, are going to turn out more in this election. I think that Democrats Kind of feel okay, or even some of them anyway. Probably feel okay. We've got a Democratic president. They didn't feel so inclined to vote. So, I do think that maybe the elections overall throughout the country leaned Republican. Uh, I don't know exactly if that if that's a sign towards 2022 or if this is just kind of a one off.
2: I think it has to be considered a win for Republicans, at least in these parts and the races that garnered national attention. That was the governor's race in Virginia, governor's race in New Jersey. Even if Jack Cittarelli doesn't win, the fact they ended up showing better than people expected, that's a win for the Republican parties. A lot of the races, whether it's for court seats, row offices in local counties, big Republican wins there. Matt Weintrobe, that was the DA in Bucks County that Jim Melwert talked about with us earlier in the week. He won by a pretty decent margin. And I think the big takeaway is whether or not this is a rebuke on President Biden, his administration, Democrats having control of the Senate and the House, or if this is also perhaps a roadmap for Republicans to find a way how to manage and deal with the still omnipresent Trump factor. How can you walk the line? I think that's what they're trying to figure out. How can you walk the line? So I think Republicans definitely have momentum. But the big question, obviously, is will that be carried over into 2022?
1: I think it's it's not a good sign for Democrats and it's an even worse sign for progressives. A lot of centrist Democrats won out over progressive candidates too. New York's mayor, Eric Adams, ran on a platform about crime. He was a police officer. That's kind of the opposite direction of where a lot of progressives are hoping things will go. So the question is. Can the whole Democratic Party come together and turn things around by next year?
0: It is something to think about because Pennsylvania, in terms of its politics, are a lot closer to Virginia than, say, New Jersey. And we've saw, we've just seen what happened down in Virginia now here in Pennsylvania where you have both a governor's race and an open U.S. Senate seat, among other things, that are going to be up for 2022. That's going to be something to definitely keep an eye on. And Sabrina, you kind of alluded to this. In Minneapolis, they had a ballot question about replacing their police department with a, quote, Department of Public Safety. Now, that got voted down, which could affect the national movement to abolish police departments nationwide.
1: Yeah, that's definitely another big sign that the progressive platform is not winning, especially in terms of abolishing the police. You know, I I think we've kind of known for a while that that's not what the majority of the country wants, whether or not you support it or not. I think a lot of people don't, wouldn't feel safe without a police department for whatever reason. I'm kind of disappointed in this case in Minneapolis. They could have set the tone. And I'm disappointed mostly that the two sides couldn't understand each other. I think a lot of people don't really understand what abolishing the police means. It We're just not communicating.
2: What I wonder is will this outcome in Minneapolis – Just how much of a mandate will that be interpreted as by lawmakers there as to how to handle potential policing reform moving forward? Okay, you don't want to replace the police department, quote-unquote, as you know it. It seems like voters spoke on that. But will that also result in any loss of momentum for potential policing reform, even if the police department continues to exist as we know it? is reform still possible there?
0: I know that we look at it here in the city of Philadelphia where there's a civilian police reform board that actually does have oversight over the Philadelphia Police Department. That's going to be something new where, again, police reform is a big deal because there are people who are on one side, get rid of police departments. You have Jack Chiarelli on the other side in New Jersey saying he doesn't even want civilian oversight on police mm-hmm. officers. There's a balance here. I say this as a son of a Detroit police officer. It's my dad was a cop for thirty-three years. There are even police officers themselves who want to see some sort of reforms for policing and being able to interact with people in neighborhoods. This is a very fraught, I guess, subject matter here. Minneapolis, the idea of dissolving a police department goes down. But yeah, what does that mean as we go forward looking at possible police reform? Now, when we come back, we'll be speaking with KYW City Hall Bureau Chief Pat Loeb about the elections here in the city of Philadelphia, as well as the federal trial of City Councilman Bobby Heenan and Union Leader John Doherty. You're listening to The Rundown. Welcome back to The Rundown. I'm Jay Scott Smith, here along with Sabrina boyd and Brian Seltzer. And now let's switch over to the city of Philadelphia. Pat Loeb, our KYW News Radio City Hall Bureau Chief, has been covering everything here in the city, not just the elections. Pat, it's good to have you on once again.
4: Always nice to be here, Jay.
0: And at the top of the ballot was the district attorney's race here in the city of Philadelphia, where Democrat Larry Krasner won pretty easily, as everyone had already expected. But his opponent, the Republican Chuck Peruto, he didn't go quietly. Here's what he had to say when he conceded. Live as it turns out on KYW News Radio.
3: The city chose what it, what, where it wants to go, what it wants to be, what it wants to do. So who am I to say to stop them? you I mean, if that's if that's what they want, that's what they want.
0: Pat, what do you think we can take away from this DA's race and its overall result?
4: Well, I think we can say that Philadelphia is a very progressive city. They reelected a district attorney who has been not like any previous district attorney, previous district attorneys were very much law and order, you know, e- even reform ones like Seth Williams, you know, always held being the city's chief law enforcement officer front and center of his identity and office. Uh, Larry Krasner has been very much a decarceration guy, a justice reform guy, a no bail guy, a no death penalty guy, and apparently that's what Philadelphia wants.
0: Now, that's not all Peruto had to say. He also added a couple more comments on the way out the door. Unfortunately,
3: it's not about who
0: you're locking up. It's who
3: you're letting out. If you're a mother of two children, one was assassinated and
0: one is doing life in prison, you can't bring the dead child home. But you might be able to bring the, the in prison child home and Larry's your hope. Speaking of things that he said, were you surprised that he effectively conceded live on the air.
4: I I wasn't because I I was there for the whole um, watch party. And it was pretty clear from very early on that he was going to go down the way most Republicans do in the city of Philadelphia.
0: Let's for a brief moment talk about those ballot questions. Can you give us a quick rundown of how those managed to play out and what changes could we see from them?
4: just as Republicans always lose in Philadelphia, ballot questions always pass. So once they were on the ballot, they were uh, pretty close to a fait accompli. Um, The big one that I think everyone welcomes is the change to the hiring practices in the city charter. The charter had said only the top two scorers on the civil service exam could be even interviewed for a job opening to understand that you would have had to be around in the 1940s, I guess, when um, the Republican Party machine controlled city government and held on to control through its powerful patronage. So when um, Democrats wrested control of city government away from them, they wanted to change that. They wanted it to be a meritocracy, and they thought that was the way to do it. The thing is, 70 years later, for A number of reasons, job applicants of color are at a disadvantage on the civil service exam. And so it was very clear, uh, department heads all over city government will tell you, it was working against diversity in hiring. The top two scorers were not necessarily the two best people for the job. There were people who were not scoring as high, who were better suited, that they wanted to hire, and that this provision of the charter, which was really kind of antiquated uh, with stopping them. So that will change. Uh, The city's personnel director will get to decide who gets selected for an interview. The question is, will this create a return to patronage? Um, I don't think so because uh, it's carefully worded to allow the personnel director to select a number of people that can be interviewed, not just to, give the job to any old person. So um, I think this is a charter change that everyone welcomes. Another one of the changes is a permanent minimum annual funding for the Housing Trust Fund. This was controversial because uh, a lot of people in city government thought it was BAD POLICY TO BUDGET THROUGH THE CITY CHARTER. AND SO THEY REALLY TRIED TO OPPOSE THIS. BUT, YOU KNOW, ONCE IT GETS ON THE BALLOT, AS I SAID, IT'S it's GOING TO PASS. AND SO IT PASSED. AND SO THE HOUSING TRUST FUND WILL GET ABOUT $25 MILLION A YEAR FROM THE CITY. THAT IS NOT ITS ONLY SOURCE OF FUNDING. ACTUALLY, MOST OF THE FUNDING COMES FROM DEVELOPERS WHO PAY A FEE INTO THE FUND through, through permits, through zoning allowances and so forth. The mayor had wanted to keep city funding flexible. He felt that that helped him get through the pandemic budget emergency to, to not be committed to any particular department for a minimum amount of funding. Um, but now he will just have to work around it. (laughs) Um, also the office of fleet management will become a permanent city department that office now oversees six thousand vehicles that includes fire engines and police cars and so it's a big job and that makes a lot of sense and then there's of course the clause that now goes permanently in the charter calling on the state to decriminalize marijuana which will either become moot if the state does it or be a permanent reminder of how ineffective philadelphia is at suggesting (laughs) things to the state
0: now, Pat, you're not just covering elections. You are also covering the trial, speaking of elections, actually, of city councilman Bobby Heenan and union leader John Dougherty. Now, the judge in the trial denied the defense request to dismiss the charges against those two men. So how did that all go down? And what happens next now that that dismissal has been wiped off the table?
4: He did dismiss uh, one of the charges against Doherty. He said he wasn't at all involved in, in the one count where Heenan supposedly quashed an audit of the parking authority because the chairman of the parking authority board had offered him free windows. Dougherty is out of that. That's a very convoluted count. It's hard to explain. The free windows never actually delivered. The person who was supposed to get them paid for them. The resolution was uh, meaningless. It was a non-binding resolution, kind of like that clause in the city charter. <laughs> uh, and it was not Heenan that called it up for it. Heenan actually had voted to table it, along with uh, the rest of the Democrats on city council. It was the bill sponsor who asked for a vote, and a majority of council turned it down. Um, however, that charge stands against Heenan only. And so the defense has started its case. And this morning, for instance, Heenan's defense attorney called a string of what I would call character witnesses, minister, the heads of nonprofits that Heenan had worked with. He asked them each what was his reputation as being a law-abiding citizen. They all said it was Sterling. But he also elicited testimony about the way that Heenan works with stakeholders on legislation and on projects, and that goes to show that John Doherty was not the only person he was listening to, not the only person giving advice. He worked with a lot of people on a lot of things, and they're trying to expand, I think, the context and, and the world in which the counts and the indictment took place.
0: Would that possibly, or could that move by the defense and the judge's denial? Could that have any effect on the rest of this case going forward?
4: No, I think the defense attorneys will make a lot of the same arguments to the jury that they made to the judge, and that is that the prosecution simply hasn't fulfilled its burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that any of the acts that they documented were unlawful.
0: Well, Pat, I know that we will be keeping an eye on this trial. Thank you so much for Joining us today, how can people keep up with the latest news on this trial?
4: Well, listen to KYW, of course. Of course. (laughs) Follow me on Twitter at Pat Loeb or on Facebook also at Pat Loeb.
0: That's KYW City Hall Bureau Chief Pat Loeb joining us today here on The Rundown. Pat, thank you so much for coming on with us.
4: Always a pleasure, Jay.
0: And that is The Rundown, which is a production of KYW News Radio Original Podcast. The show is produced by Sabrina Boyd Circa and Brian Seltzer. The director of podcasting for KYW News Radio is Tom Rickard. I'm Jay Scott Smith, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jay Scott Smith. J A Y S C O, two T's, S M I T H. It's real Jay Scott Smith on Facebook and on Instagram. You can hear me every afternoon on KYW News Radio starting at three o'clock for Philadelphia's afternoon news. Of course, you can be sure to follow The Rundown on Twitter at The Rundown PHL. Again, The Rundown PHL all one word. You can, of course, hear us for free on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining us for this Wednesday edition of The Rundown.